Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At bluenile.com, you can design a one of a kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to bluenile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at bluenile.com for $50 off your purchase. bluenile.com code LISTEN. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to the Osher Ginsberg podcast. I'm Osher Ginsberg. This is episode 200 of the show. Episode 200. 200 episodes. Thank you so much for helping it make it happen. Uh, the episode today is with Fiona O'Loughlin. You can find her on Twitter at Fiona, O-L-O-U-G-H-L-I-N underscore Fiona, O-L-O-U-G-H-L-I-N underscore tell you more about her in a moment here we are episode 200 uh by now you've probably figured out that i've finally started uh doing ads um your patreon support if you're a patreon supporter your patreon support has been absolutely incredible and has got me to this point i would not have been able to do this show for the last year and a half without you on patreon but i've been thinking a lot about this podcast and what i want to do with it how I can perhaps turn it from something that I do for a passion and maybe make it into something that I perhaps add into my quiver of things that put food on the table for my family. Um, always on this show, I'm talking to people who are making the thing that they love, the thing that they get paid for, and I'd better put my money where my mouth is. And so here we are. So I do want to let you know, if you are a Patreon supporter, I'm talking directly to you. Uh, I want to... Thank you so much for everything, and I want you to consider this the moment where you release me back into the wild. Like a rescued dolphin that's lived in a theme park while he got his health back. You've been with me for the last 18 months, making this show with me every single week, and now you've put your wetsuit on, you've driven me in the big fish tank on the back of a truck out to the seaside, and you're putting me back in the ocean where I came from. If you do want to keep supporting me, I'd be incredibly grateful. But if you want to see this as the moment where I'm able, able to go it alone, I'm incredibly grateful for you to help me get this far. 
time constraints have clamped down upon me and I simply won't be able to bring you the exclusive episodes that you've been getting as a Patreon supporter. So it's totally up to you if you continue to pledge money every month. Uh, You can cancel your pledge and you can let this podcasting cetacean dolphin back into the sea and watch we swim around your boat for a little while to say goodbye and then join up with a passing pod of podcasters flippering off into the sea with a little spout of goodbye out of my blowhole. Or if you could like, if you like, you could keep that money uh, coming into Patreon. Think of it like a GPS tag attached to my fin. And every time you download the show, you'll know you helped me make the show and grow into the podcaster that I've become. The money will most definitely still be very helpful, uh, but I'm just no longer able to offer the uh, exclusive episode in return for your help. It's totally up to you. I'm so grateful and I love you either way, whatever it is that you choose to do. To check in with you this week, I'm doing okay. Um, I'm about to go on a holiday with the family, so I'm, I'm kind of a bit elevated, perhaps even excited, even though it is late at night and we leave in less than 12 hours and I haven't packed a thing. Um, but this is the first holiday we've taken as a family for a long time, all year, in fact, um, to be the first two days off in a row that I've had in a really, really long time. So I'm very, very excited. We're off to the South Pacific to go and look at the fishes, go and hang out with the whales. Uh, I aim to put a lot of it on Instagram, so do follow along on Instagram if you want to see what I'm up to with the wife and the kid. I did want to take a moment. I know I talked about it last week, but I want to take a moment to talk about the same-sex marriage postal survey in Australia, which is still going on. And if uh, you are undecided or there is a, a vocal no voter in your life, um, maybe uh, you may want to consider, you know, some facts. There's a lot of people shouting about things that aren't facts. Safe schools! I don't know what the fuck they're worried about. It's just teaching people not to be pricks and not to be bullies. That's all it is. Um, religious freedom! Shit, if they, st- if they came after your religious freedom, I'd fucking protest next to you. It's not about that. It's not about that at all. But what it is about is stigma and discrimination. And science is a thing I love because you can't fuck with facts. Um, Some of the biggest mental health advocacy advocacy groups in Australia have banded together. Reach Out, Headspace, Origin, the Black Dog Institute, the Sydney University's Brain and Mind Centre. These five organizations have banded together and they've launched a campaign called mind the facts hashtag mind the facts they've shown that by simply voting yes ticking a box putting an envelope in a letterbox you can prevent up to 3,000 high school students from attempting suicide every year That is a mind-blowing statistic. A lot of people going, but the children! If you really care about children, care enough to help a kid who, through no fault of his or her own, is born in a different way, and help that kid live in a world that tells them, you know what, you're right, not you don't belong. If you really care about children, if you really are staunchly caring about kids, care enough to vote and vote to save these children from the stigma and discrimination that currently is facing them. It's not 
going to do it overnight, but this is the beginning of the dismantling of the stigma and discrimination against LGBT kids, humans, people, everyone in our society. If you're still undecided about the same-sex marriage vote, please try to consider, try consider voting with kindness. Try to consider working to dismantle the discrimination and stigma in our community that LGBT people face. I spoke with some incredibly wonderful people this week online and in person, people who are devout, devout believers, devout religious people. I would ask you, what what's more important? Your definition of a word or a vulnerable kid that might not be here tomorrow because of <laughs> what? they're faced with in everyday life as far as stigma and discrimination goes. What's more valuable, the definition of a word or a human's life? I'll leave that decision to you. On a lighter note, I did want to thank very, very kindly all the people that sent in a great podsy picture this week. Some brilliant podsies came through. That's P-O-D-S-I-E. It's a picture that you take while you're listening to this. So whatever it is you're out doing right now, you may be at home doing something, you may be out doing something, whatever it is you're doing, just whip out your phone, shoot a shot, send it to me. Uh, send Osher email at gmail.com is my email address, or you can find me on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram or Snapchat or wherever you want. Some brilliant ones came through this week. I've got a cracking one of uh, someone out for a hike in the mountains around Canberra, the beautiful forest out there taking me for a walk in the woods. Brilliant, brilliant stuff. A glorious photo of a, a sunset from a rooftop in Morocco from Samantha, who's out there traveling right now. So great. So, so great. And I've, I've got a great one from a bloke called Rob, who was just sitting in his car waiting for... Someone to finish school or someone to finish a meeting, just sitting there waiting in his car. It was a photo of the suburbs of some city in Australia, but it was great. You know, it's so wonderful to to know what it is you're doing when you're listening to this show. Uh, I'd like to think that I'm open on this show and, and you can get to know me a little bit. And this is a great way for me to get to know you a little bit. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I didn't want to tell you about my guest today, and I'm really happy she's here. Fiona O'Loughlin is an Australian stand-up comedian and author. You can find her on Twitter at Fiona O'Loughlin. That's Fiona L-O-U-G-H-L-I-N underscore. Fiona came to my house one afternoon last week. Uh, she actually had a documentary crew in tow. She's been filming the last few years of her life's journey. Hopefully it's going to become a, a TV show or a film before too long. Fiona's got an incredible story. I'll let her tell most of it, but it is important to know just how incredible her comedy career is and that she started later in life as a comedian and found incredible success, won all kinds of awards and quite publicly has struggled uh, with addiction. It's a big deal for someone in her profile to talk about the struggles that she's faced. In our conversation, Fiona and I... Well, we, we talk fairly openly with each other about sobriety, addiction, recovery, and hope. If there's anything in this chat that does strike a chord with you, don't forget that there is a lot of help, and it's right around the corner. In fact, unless you're in super outback, ultra-isolated Australia, I'd hedge a bet that 
you can find a group of like-minded people who are willing and ready and grateful to help you in your very own suburb or just next door. I know this because I'm someone who's in recovery, who found help through a community of people that offered the help when I asked for it. And you don't have to look very far to find that help when you're ready to stop living the same day again and again. Now, some people may hear that and go, I like living the same day again and again. But if you struggle with alcohol or you struggle with addiction, you know exactly what I'm talking about. But help is there. All you have to do is ask for it. I can't thank Fiona enough for coming on this show. And she is a perfect guest for this, our 200th episode of the show. If you like what you hear, please let her know. Find her on Twitter, Fiona O'Loughlin, Fiona O-L-O-U-G-H-L-I-N underscore. And come and enjoy a cup of tea with Fiona O'Loughlin. Hi, Fiona. Hello, Osha. Welcome. Thank you. You have a camera in my kitchen. <laughs> Sorry about that. Why is there a camera in my kitchen? Well, Sam's been making a documentary about me, a documentary I'll never watch, but there you go. It's, yeah, it's been, it started years ago and then some shit happened and went down. He's been capturing it all, so. How did you meet Sam? I met him, um, look, my version of events, and I've not actually run this by Sam, but I remember finishing a show at the Melbourne Comedy Festival and this kid came up to me and asked, would I like to be interviewed? And I, my manager at the time was so rude. He blocked him, put his hand out. And he said, we're talking to networks. We're, we're talking to networks. Said something naff like that, something showbiz and mean. Yeah. And the Melbourne Town Hall at that time, mid-festival, is just a heaving throng of people. It's a bustling excitement place. And all of a sudden this kid was gone and I was sick to my stomach and I just raced down the Town Hall stairs to find him. And fortunately, I found him. And yeah, we've been friends ever since. Oh. He's actually my best friend, which is very strange well, that's really to be a 54 year old woman and your best friend's a 25 year old man. <laughs> <laughs> that's okay. But it is, it's, um, I've been thinking about it a lot. I think the great shame of the way we live nowadays, you know, less in a village. You can really calcify if you don't extend your friendship to young people. And I've had the luxury of that through my work, you know. And, I, yeah, I just think it keeps your mind. It's very healthy, you know. It's almost like you keep up with the language. And it's not about being cool and groovy and down with the kids. It's just how it should be, I think. I think there's different ages for a purpose, you know? I just don't feel, um, I feel ridiculously old around Sam, but it's funny, you know? And it's joyful. What was your life like when you were 25? Well, it's interesting. One of my best friends was a 60 year old woman. So I kind of get that. When I was 25, though, I was um, a different person. I was a practicing Catholic. Um, with three children, more to come, living in Alice Springs, and a wife. <laughs> okay, hang on. So a 25-year-old with three kids now is? Uh, 
from Frankston or <laughs> Okay. So, no, it's okay. just not a thing, is it? Let's just let's just backtrack a little there. Just so just for folks who aren't aware of, of, of Frankston. Like when I grew up in, in Brisbane I had no idea what you know, I used to watch in Brisbane, I used to watch the cricket getting played and going, Why are they wearing jumpers? It's fucking summer. <laughs> you know, yeah. I had no idea of what Victoria was or the climate or anything like that. So yeah. you grew up in Frankston. No, no, I was kidding. I was just that was just oh, being mean okay. about All right, yeah. then, okay. Where did you grow up? I grew up in a tiny country town in South Australia, um, near coastal town. You could see the sea just from our place. Which coastal town? Waruka. Waruka, where's it near if people were? Uh, it's the little peninsula next to Adelaide. Uh-huh. It looks a bit like Italy. Yeah. Not when you get up close though. Okay. <laughs> so on the, on the other side of Gulf St. Vincent, on the other side it's there? The, it's, it's that little peninsula uh-huh. that runs yeah, between the Air Peninsula, which is the big fat triangle one, yeah. and then there's Adelaide, and York Peninsula is like, shaped like a foot. Okay. So is that where all the surfers get eaten by sharks down there? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. So and what was life like there? It was... Um, well, I was one of seven, so it's all a bit so of a... strongly practising Catholic. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we were a small family. What number are you? Three. Okay. So it was a different... Yeah, I was... Uh, I was just infuriated with the state of childhood. I couldn't stand it. I didn't like... And I had a happy, you know, childhood, but I wasn't a particularly happy kid in amongst that. I didn't like, um, I just didn't like the tone, you know, of adults to kids. Uh, I didn't like the way they, you know, that kind of tone. I still hear it now sometimes. You know, I've heard it with people my age with their kids, you know, say, I know a little girl who's going to be in bed very early tonight. You know, it's just like, what what the fuck is that? (laughs) Use a normal voice. Yeah. I actually have this fantasy of going back in time with this head, not that it's a sharp mind, but just with the knowledge that they are toothless tigers, you know. And I don't mean that I wanted to be a rebel. I just wanted um, emancipation. I wanted Mm. liberty. Well, there is a powerlessness that is thrust upon you when you're suddenly constantly reminded, particularly with that tone of voice, like, oh, I really have no choice in what happens here. Yeah. I have no agency in this situation. No. And there's a way, I'm sure, to convey that to kids yeah. um, without making it so acutely aware that they are in absolutely no control of their lives. There's a, there's a way that makes a kid feel lurched and protected and there's a way that makes a kid feel like they're living in a horrible dystopian kind yes, of dictatorship. Yeah, yeah. And incredible. I think for a lot of certainly parenting when when I when I was younger, that was fairly normal. Mm. I was like, you can't let them go with anything. Yeah, yeah. You've got to yell at them the whole time. Absolutely, yeah. You've got to um, keep them in check, even yeah. their, their little egos. <laughs> I, I'd love to go back just for one day because I'd – be able to save my skin too, but just go, oh, shut the fuck up, you know, <laughs> to the nuns and to the parents. Right. So, <laughs> wow. So you're this really, is bullshit. So you were really living the Australian dream on this kind of edge of society, edge of civilization, because it really is there. You've got the ocean on one end yeah. and unending desert behind you. Yeah, yeah. There's really nowhere to go as a kid, is there? Nowhere to go except your head, you oh. know, and I was a daydreamer. Yeah. And I actually looked like I was paying attention at school. The you know, teachers used to be quite confused with my grades because they were appalling. Because I'd sit up the front. I was not a rat bag. I was not a lot of comedians to the kids down the back of the class, you know. I'd sit right up the front 
stare directly at the teacher and look interested because I worked out how to do that because then you get completely free of trouble mm. and then you get to daydream. Right. And that's how I, I daydream my whole childhood away, you know, just wishing and longing and escaping, <laughs> escaping, waiting, waiting for the waiting, uh, waiting for school so you could sit there and, and think about things. Yeah, uh, I, I, I remember I even as a kid, like with seven children in the house and like five girls in one bedroom, one toilet. There was no door that locked. Mm. You know, the only door that locked in that house was the bathroom, uh, the toilet door, and. Every now and then you'd take a book into the toilet and just sit on the floor and you'd get about 10 minutes. But someone always knew where you were and you'd hear it. Where's Fiona? Where are you? Know, oh, shit, I just, I just want to be alone yeah. for five minutes. Yeah. And you always moved on as a kid. You know, I remember even on the weekends if you tried to, all I want to do is read a book. You know, what's, can I just read a book? They'd come find you. Yeah. What are you doing? You know, there's no no idleness. <laughs> but you then you get up and you know, well, what am I supposed to be doing? Well, I guess with f- four younger brothers and sisters, there's it's probably always... changing nappies and looking after <laughs> kids. <laughs> there's always something to do, right? Yeah. yeah. So how did did you did you go? Uh, did you meet the fellow that would become the husband in that town, or what happened there? Well, I met him. Um, he was. One of seven as well. <laughs> and he lived in Adelaide. Um, I went to boarding school when I was 15. And in year 12, f- believe it or not, I was a prefect at boarding school, probably that sitting at the front of the class looking like I was interested. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember the head nun, at, that was a wonderful time, boarding school, because they were Dominican nuns and there was no corporal punishment. You know, they were quite feminist and... And real, really learned women. You imagine you've got a history degree and no kids. You know, you're a nun. All you've got to do is pass on your love of history. You know, they were pretty incredible women in the main. But I remember the head nun um, called us into her office one day and she said, look, there's because it was a massive girls' school and not a posh one. It was kind of they'd call it povo now. But it was a really cool school, you know, Cabra it was called. And Cabra girls to this day are... we went against the grain, you know, mm. and I remember um, this nun called us in and she said, look, one of our year fives was killed in a light plane accident on the weekend, her and her mother, and we need a guard of honour. So they paired us with a year five, so we're year 12s, so maybe there were seven year 12s and seven year fives. We went to this funeral and we were holding, yeah, I remember holding this little girl's hand and as this little white coffin went past, uh, and the pilot had been a relative as well, so there's three, they were all buried together, the mother, the daughter and an uncle. And Libby was 10, this little girl, and I remember this little girl holding my hand and she said, can I take your hand off yours, out of yours? I need to blow my nose, you know, she was crying. It was just an insane experience. And then we sat in the front of the church and I remember feeling so physically, like, ashamed almost because this funeral was massive and I thought, we're taking up two precious rows right at the top of the church and there's people spilling into the street and in a hall next door watching it on closed-circuit te- telly. But, and I looked over at the family and 
there were seven, six older brothers and sisters. They were all young adults and this little girl was the baby and by a long way. And I, I'll never forget looking at that family and, you know, they've lost their mother and their baby sister and you almost can't breathe and look at that. Anyway, what I didn't know was that I formed a guard of honour from the mother-in-law and sister-in-law I would never meet, you know. I ended up marrying one of those boys. Oh. Yeah. Which, and the way that we got together was I, I knew enough, and my mother taught me this, that you don't, and that is one thing you've got to give the Catholics, you know, that they will go straight to the core of grief, you know. I think if you have as many as us, we get used to it, you know. Yeah. And, and it's an Irish trait too, that it's not something to be ashamed or afraid of. Yeah. And I bowled straight up to Chris, I think, and the first thing I said was I was at your mother and sister's funeral. And even that small thing, um, he paid attention, you know, and he was bloody gorgeous. Mm. And he said they had been kind of, people had been afraid of them and people are afraid of loss. Yeah, you know, people don't want to do around death. And they didn't. And he, all of a sudden this girl just, and I asked him about them. Mm. And that was kind of our first connection. And, yeah, we started. But it really was, I mean, I would never, we're separated now. Um, he just bored me to death. He would not shut up about his grief. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you lost your mother and your sister. Oh, go on. No. But um, I think in hindsight, I've I've spent a lot of time uh, in a very hardcore rehab last year, mm. and I had no idea what a codependent was. Uh. And they had me pegged as a codependent within the first two weeks. Yeah. And I remember this, my caseworker, she said, oh, you're so codependent. It's, and I'm like, what's a codependent? And then so much made sense. Because I – and it, codependency is actually quite selfish, you know. I, at first I thought that sounds all right, you know. That, but what it is is you – your discomfort. Like I was so – when I say we're good at grief, but the thing was I wanted that fixed, you know. I couldn't – so that was really a discomfort I had that I couldn't sit with. And I bloody railroaded that marriage. Because my plan was, and it was a good intention, I guess, but it's not looking at, I mean, who's getting married at 22 anyway? But all these years later, I see what I did. And mm. I haven't actually told him yet. <laughs> I must get round to that. <laughs> yeah. But I, it was so, um, in a way, sweet, but in another way, quite obnoxious. For people, like, when you talk about codependence, I certainly can relate to that because, um, you know, it's been said to me if you, you know, you take alcohol away from an alcoholic, what you get is a codependent. And uh, that was true with me. Um, for folks who don't kind of really haven't heard what the word codependent is, what, how would you describe it? Um, well, f for me, and I think this is a, we come in lots of shapes and sizes, codependence too, but I, my happiness depends on someone else's. That's, how it rolls for me, you know, it's like this endless chase. And it really is about making yourself feel good, which is the bit that was hard to swallow, you know. So, yeah, so long as I feel that everyone's happy, I can then be happy. Give joy, get joy, you know. Mm. And there's a, the, 
for the dangerous part there is that you create a porous boundary between another's emotions and your own. Yeah. Whether they know it or not. Yeah. <laughs> Certainly with me, you're able to find a way to needle your way into yeah. to the way they're feeling. And suddenly they're like, why am I feeling shit all of a sudden? <laughs> I was fine 10 minutes ago. <laughs> oh, God, that's so true. And I think what I was, you know, saying was, come with me, I'll make this better. Ah. Uh. You know, come with me, I'll be so much fun, you know, because his mother was great fun too. I remember hearing all these stories about how right. funny and how off the wall she was, you yeah. know, and that was quite unusual back then to have and how missed she must have been, you know. And I was like, come with me and we'll, I'll fix this. And, you know, the really interesting thing is he was he didn't need fixing. Um, and he explained this to me years later. He had a very clean grief. And when I say clean grief... I believe he possibly was not her favourite, but there's some children that you have. You know, I've got one. My sister has one. We call them the polite house guests. They're the kids that they're just easy they're in their skin and they're bloody easy to be around. And so he'd never had a crossword with his mother and he adored his sister. You know, his little sister, the morning she died, that she was leaving on a plane to Alice Springs that day she crawled into bed with him gave him a big smooch you know she's 11 he's 20 well 19 it was his 19th birthday she's 11 he's 19 and that's his last memory of her is having this gorgeous cuddle in the bed and then um he went and got his mother a cup of tea stood in the doorway and looked at her and took the time to think how much he loved her and imagine if he never saw her again so a very clean grief. You know, he said, yes, it was sad, but I knew. And he was also, um, you know, he's a Christian bloke. He believed there's a, a ever after and he was going there and he'd see them again one day. So what the fuck was I doing? <laughs> <laughs> Coming in to mess with all of yeah. this. And all hell is shit. <laughs> so what was, uh, what was Alice Springs like? I've only been to Alice Springs a few times. I think the first time I went there was 2000. Um, I can only imagine what it was like before. In the year oh, it before was that. wild and extraordinary. It was such an amazing – I always felt a bit like a stranger there. Um, it, I felt very white, you know, and I felt very guilty. It's a hard place to live with a conscience. <laughs> Why know? do you say that? Because it's racist. It's intensely racist. And and what, how does that manifest? Uh, it's – Behind closed doors, not even that closed, like barbecues in Alice Springs, you will hear, you know, it's just what it is, you know, it's South Africa and it's very confronting. Um, and there's only so many times you can, you almost have to betray yourself, not that you join in, but you, who fights with Nazis, you know, it's a battle you're not going to win. So there was that. And yet again, I think codependency with that, I ended up fostering a lot of Aboriginal babies um, and that was totally about making myself feel good. <laughs> so how many kids did you have at that point? I had, oh, yeah, I had three when we had our first foster baby. I just found him on Facebook the other day, a little boy called Terence. Um, but that served its own purpose, you know, as fucked up as I am and for whatever reason I did. And I know why I did that because I innately am like everyone, selfish. I can't stand watching the news and the horror 
I think the Cuban, no, not the Cuban Missile Crisis. That was in the 60s. It was some big shit was going down internationally, a bit like now. Um, oh, what was it? And I'm like, don't ruin the world now. I'm just starting a family. And the news was terrifying. Yeah. I remember what this was. And it was Reagan, I think. Oh, so Reagan and Gorbachev. Yeah, it was okay. Reagan and Gorbachev. They were, they were rattling sabers. A lot of people don't remember that there really was a threat of nuclear war yeah. every fucking night of it the week. It was really scary. Yeah. And I'm like, and then, and famine out of the, yeah. you know, no, yeah. famine going nuts Sahara as well. And, yeah. and I'm like, I can't stand this. You know, the, this guilt of being happy and healthy and you just want everything to be great and everything was great. And I'm like, but I want to sleep at night. And so when I started fostering, you know, having these little, mostly Aboriginal, not all Aboriginal, but we would always have some little waif. And what the purpose that served is I got to give my, my head a rest. I literally let myself off the hook for everything. I'm like, well, as long as I'm putting this little waif to bed, you know, I don't have to worry about the news. I just go, and I, they had a happy mother, and we had a rollicking good time because they all had a twin, you know, and also, and it's interesting because people would think that's a hard thing to do, but it's not. Like I'm an emotionally quite lazy person and physically quite lazy as well, but I had a lot of babies anyway. So I used to feed them wheat bix in the bath, you know. I learnt so many great tricks. But the beauty of that, I think it's, in life, it's almost like eat your vegetables first, you know, that's my motto. And in th- what that did, it changed, and I didn't know this, I certainly didn't have the, f- the foresight, but it changed who my children were, it, like completely. They, and that was just a bonus side effect. Having the foster kids around? Absolutely. How so? Because then you don't need to tell them what's wrong about those barbecues. And the, and hearing in the new year, it's all explained. They know they're on the side of, they're on the good side. They're on the right side because it was, it, it interrupted their worlds. Not interrupted. That's not the right word. But when you've got to move over at two o'clock in the morning because two little kids have coming, you know, welfare are dropping off two little kids whose lives are pretty fucking ordinary. And they're not um, treated like have-nots. They're, you know, there's nothing to say. You're doing it. It's walking the walk instead of talking the talk, you know. You make an interesting point about, you know, because I'm sure even now people turn on the news and go, well, fuck, we're going to, the sea's boiling right now. There's big, stronger hurricanes than there have ever been in the, in the history of humanity. Mm. Kim Jong-un's firing fucking missiles over Japan every second day. Um, I can't change that world. Oh, you can. But if, I, but, but if I turn the telly off and I look after this kid, yeah. I'm absolutely changing his entire world. And, a- that's, and you're having a great and that's enough. time in your head at and the same enough. time. Isn't that yeah. amazing that you get a yeah. kickback? Because yeah. it wasn't like, oh, poor me, look, look what I'm doing. It was like... I have never known peace like that. What was it like when it came time for those foster kids to go? Uh, it was I have um, I had a a girlfriend, my best friend, who lived in Tennant Creek, and she's been doing it for years, fostering. She doesn't even go through the 
foster channels. You know, she can't be bothered with paperwork. She has friends that are Aboriginal that are down and out. If they're, you know, on the booze, she'll say, well, I'll have the baby until you're okay. Mm. And she does. And sometimes the babies never go back, but it's a deal she makes with the mother. And then it's like open fostering. It's incredible. And Jasmine is like such a mentor of mine and my children that I call her Mother Teresa with a mouth like a sailor. And she she was doing it long before me. Mm. And I remember saying to her, but, you know, and it was such a white mentality. It was such a Western greedy mentality, you know. I said to her, what's it like when you have to give them back? And she said, oh, for fuck's sake, Fiona. She said, no one owns babies. Every ass needs wiping. What, am I going to cry for two days, you dickhead? That's how she talks to me. She has no respect. (laughs) And so I kind of never went there with that. It's pretty self-indulgent, you know. Yeah. But there's got to be a point where you become attached emotionally to these kids and you're saying goodbye and they're going maybe back to a situation that you aren't sure of? Well, you, I did get attached to Terence, the first one, and then I learnt from that because it hurt too much, you know. You just harden your heart a bit. So you're there for them when they're with you? Yeah, and then off they go. Right. I remember being <laughs> really miffed. We had a little boy called Freddie and he lived way, way out, you know, in the – I don't even know what community it was, but it was traditional. He was, uh, and not many of them were. Some of them were, well, a lot of them would camp, you know, from camps near Alice Springs. Mm. But this kid was way, way out. Proper and bush. Yeah. Proper bush. And they came to um, give him a trial run because he came to us to learn how to walk. He'd been in hospital so long he just didn't have his sea legs, you know, and there was nothing really wrong with his legs, but he was so delayed in walking. And that was gorgeous, my kids cheering Freddie on, you know. And it was kind of bittersweet too because as soon as he could walk, he had to go. And they came to pick him up and take him to this community uh, to see all his family. And it was so exciting, you know, for him and the kids were really excited and we got him dressed up because I was a bit of a dickhead back then. I'd love the Oshkosh, you know, that bullshit where you buy designer clothes for your kids. But they're cute, dress them up, you know. Anyway, we we oshkoshed Freddie to the hilt. He had every, you know, he had the best clobber on. And then they took him out for his trial run and he didn't come back because <laughs> it worked too well. Yeah. So we never got to say goodbye. And it did make me laugh. I'm thinking, geez, there's a kid out there. With the <laughs> Fantastic. It's the best dressed kid. The best dressed kid in the bush. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, they're hunting and gathering, <laughs> living a traditional life, speaking his own language, living with wearing these incredible Western yeah. clothes. What's the biggest? What do you think the biggest mis- misconception in metropole in Australia? Cool fact: a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. There is about people who live in those communities. 
that because on on record it looks like we're all doing the right thing and we are not you know it's as simple as oh god the long the more you know the less you know you know my son works um and lives out in Mimili so he's that's his life's work you know he he has um always been drawn to you know, he's seen some stuff, you know. And I, Where is this place? It's in the APY lands, which is a big Aboriginal country that crosses into Arendt of Pichinjara, Yundamu, I think. What part of it? Arendt of yeah, so it cross, it's mostly in South Australia, but it crosses into WA and, not, and Northern Territory. Oh, so that top left corner if we look at yeah, that. Yeah, it's massive, okay. yeah. And I said to him, yeah, what's the worst thing you've seen? And he said, oh, three toddlers eating off the same bone as a dog. And Henry's incredible. Like, he's a grown-up, way more grown-up than me. I love Monday nights. I used to ring him and get him to explain Q&A to me. <laughs> like, I get, I get the rundown. He's like, What's that show, The News for Kids, that used to be on? Oh, Behind the News. He's my Behind the News guy. Okay. Like, so I run everything by him. Basically, yeah. what am I supposed to think, Henry? Yeah. And he just gives it to me. He's a he's um, very economic in his language, which is kind of a real match because he lives, you know, so closely with Indigenous people. That's They marry very well. But I said to him, how long before you won't see that? And he said, well, it won't be in my lifetime. And that's what we have to understand, that it's taken so long. And it's so heartbreaking that... <clears throat> You know, even people I love that haven't lived in the Territory who will say things like, well, they just need to clean up and get to... So what the fuck are you talking about? You can't... It's like we're... If you think of Australia as a playground and we're picking on these kids, but we're the school bully, and whenever we're asked about it, we go, no, I didn't do anything. No, no, we gave him lots of money. No, we did it. You know that kid? And that's who we are. That's who white Australia is. No, we no, we didn't because you can't. You know, you, we don't have control of how that girl. The, I remember losing it one day in the checkout, and it was an Aboriginal person, an Aboriginal woman who looked down and out, and yeah, they smell. Get over it. It's a smell. You know, of course you're going to smell. If you live in a camp and you don't have running water, you know, you don't get to shower. That's a white mentality, and and the stench is pretty. Fierce, you know, and I remember having the biggest laugh one day with with Bert, my son, in Coles, and this, you know, it's it's an arid. This I'm talking about Aboriginals from because that's all I know is the arid, you know, Indigenous. And this woman walked into Coles, and holy crap, it was fucking fierce. Yeah, and that's what you're gonna get, and you just see because people in Alice Springs want to live a white life, but they're doing it in a fucking Aboriginal cathedral. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And they want our sensibilities and they want streets and councils and they want everyone to play nice, you know. Yeah. And I just thought it was like this woman walked into Coles and, and gave everyone the finger. Fuck, I laughed. <laughs> and Bert's like, what are you laughing at? Uh, I said, oh, I don't know, but vaginas do want washing. And... <laughs> Oh, to me it was hilarious. 
But anyway, I remember when they were kids and there was an Aboriginal woman being served at the checkout before me and it was just the subtlety in the way she was treated. And it's like that kid I was talking about in the school ground. You know, you can't pull her up on that because she still served her. Yeah. Technically. But it's the mannerism. It's the tone. Yeah. Yeah, what are you doing? Why that tone? Yeah. Why? So you want to make people feel bad, but you're the same people who say, well, why don't they just get off their ass and get a job? It's like, well, fuck you. They know they're not welcome. You, 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 the whole world's an asshole to them. The white world are assholes. Yeah. I know exactly the look you're talking about. Uh, I've seen it at that Coles just on the edge of town where there's like a BWS or something on the outside of it and it's got like double metal grills across the door. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And I, I the because we were there with Australian Idol and so the bloke saw us and he was like, hey. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, they're in the back there. All right, yeah, yeah. And he turned around and the way he treated the next man in line was like, like, fuck me. And <laughs> that's know? why. That's why, as Henry says, it won't happen in his lifetime. How yeah. can it happen? Yeah. Well, that sensibility is so alive. Yeah. Alive and kicking. But it's a truly special part of this planet that is so easy to access for us as a country, as a nation. But so few people go out there. Yeah. From Metro Australia. Yeah, yeah. So few people go out there. It's extraordinary when you live there. Um, and it's also like it's on so many bucket lists. But mm. you see people going there. You're living there in this suburban life. And it can be very grim. Alice Springs can be so stunning in one minute. And just the different, the sun, the, you know, sunset and sunrise, stunning. Mid-afternoon on a 40-degree day, it's hell on earth, you know. Mm. And then you see, and side by side, you've not only got this, you know, culture of this Indigenous culture happening and all that, and then us, and then you've got international tourists. Yeah. <laughs> And this is like the point. I used to sit there, you know, on bad days, looking at them going, really? This is your big must-do? Come here, <laughs> yeah. idiots? Well, I guess, you know, unless but, you go to the Amazon, where else are you going to see tribal culture, you know, pushing up against oh, Western civilization? Yeah. There's not many places you can do that left in the world. And I wish sometimes I'll go back to Jasmine just talking about the sensibilities of the because what you hear up there always is the housing, you know, and the housing is so fucking sad and, you know, grim. What do you want to give a fucking house to in a, a nomadic culture for? I know. And someone said, Jasmine is a classic, someone said, oh, we give them houses <laughs> and they just ruined them. Jasmine said it was just so spot on. She said, what did you want them to do, hang nice curtains and invite you over for dinner? <laughs> You know? well, she's right. Jasmine's right. She's so right. And it took. And what you talked about the barbecues earlier. When I grew up in Queensland, um, that's the kind of stuff that I heard because there was a lot of people that had come down from the you know the rural areas to come and live in Brisbane. And that's the kind of stuff I heard. And then just like a light a fire in the living room and da da. da. And yeah. it wasn't until years. And that's what I believed. Yeah. Until years later, they went. Oh, hang on, there are people that would normally traverse hundreds of kilometres through the seasons of the year, and you're asking them to stay in one spot. Yeah, of course that's fucking weird. Incredible. Yeah. yeah, and they're in trouble if they leave it. Yeah. Well, if I did, if I couldn't leave, yeah, I'd burn it down. Yeah. I mean, like, fuck you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I but I never understood that when I was a child. It was only as an adult that I kind of started to grasp um, what was different 
because I didn't, we didn't really get taught anything else at, at school, but there in mind, I grew up under Joe Bjorka Peterson. So, right, right, right. The curriculum was probably skewed in one direction. Yeah. <laughs> to, be, to be honest. The, the one thing, and, and, you know, it, it would be remiss of me because it is something that we share. Um, when you got out, there is a, there is a definite kind of drinking that happens out in Alice Springs, isn't there? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and yet that was, I danced to a completely different, you know, my alcoholism didn't really, wasn't involved in that. Yeah. Yeah. Mine got out of control with, um, I guess I just fast-tracked it though, yeah, um, because when I never drank when I was, but early on in the piece, I, I've always loved to drink, but I like to get drunk. Well, when you've got kids, little kids, and you can't drink when you're pregnant, I remember a doctor saying to me, oh, one or two won't hurt you. Like, have you any idea how much one or two would hurt me? Like, I'm not interested in one or two, I want 20. Mm. And so for years I just didn't have any because it was I didn't like hangovers. And so my alcoholism really progressed uh, later. But definitely it's an impossible place. Like, getting sober there was out of the question. That's yeah. kind of one of the reasons I left because it is just it's, it's, it's a river of piss. <laughs> it's a, just a river of grog. And you know what's really interesting too? is the booze culture up there, you know, with the whites. It's hilarious. We're driving. I remember my sister-in-law saying, and she really hit the nail on the head, we're in our flash four-wheel drives, we're going to someone's place for a barbecue, basically to get pissed, you know. And we passed an Aboriginal family walking along with their flagons. Uh, No, not flagons, the cask wine. Yeah. And she said, isn't this hilarious? We're doing exactly the same thing. <laughs> she said, we're just doing it in a nice car and smarter bottles. <laughs> but it's the same shit, completely different bucket, but exactly the same shit. It's exactly the same thing. Well, people don't want to see that, do no. they? They don't want to see that. I mean, there's, no, they're in a park. Yeah. And someone's going to blow that up later and lie on it. And, and I, <laughs> I really think that – actually, it is interesting that you say that, Osha, because I believe what the culture up there is – Darwin and Alice Springs, because it's such a young, like, culturally, Adelaide, I guess that's changing now as the world's getting smaller, but once upon a time, you go to mum and dad's for a Sunday roast, there's no grown-ups in Alice Springs. No, there's not. If I'm the grown-up, we're all fucked, aren't we? Yeah. You know, like, (laughs) and that's the same for everyone. It's a transient city where young people move and, yeah, there were no grown-ups. So, you know, party was on. I remember that when I went to Darwin. It's like, wow, no one's from here, are they? No, no one's everyone's, from here. Everyone's living here and, and <laughs> you probably weren't Michelle in your, before you got here, were you? <laughs> I mean, I'm, not, I'm one to talk because I changed my name, but I definitely got that vibe of that's where you go. If you've done 10 in the pen oh, and you yeah, don't yeah, want yeah. the old, old life to catch Absolutely. up with you. Absolutely, yeah. Hoof, hoof it on up to Darwin, yep. find yourself a nice sweet job. And, and it uh, culturally is that city yeah, in Australia. It really is. That's it, where you go. Yeah, it really is. So when... Um, because you know, people ask me a bit about uh, about alcohol, and and f- for me, booze was always the thing that um, it was the thing that was made it easier to be in a room full of people. Yeah, for me. Um, but other people seem to in- enjoy the people. I don't know. That's what I was there for. <laughs> <laughs> Can you stop talking? You're interrupting my drinking. <laughs> that was more what it was for me. So. Um, you uh, you've been quite open about uh, your your life with drinking and your struggles with drinking. And um, can you 
explain to some you know someone who's who's never understood the concept well, how would you explain that need for or how would you answer the question well why don't you just not have a second drink how would you explain that to someone who's no no concept of what alcoholism is um well i've never had a drink in my life pardon i've never had a drink in my life as in one okay. you know it's, I, I don't know how to explain that. I think it's trying to show someone a colour they've never seen before, you yeah. know. It becomes I, – I mean, I think I was ready to go as a f- alky, you know, before I – years before I picked up a drink, you know. Go back to the codependency, but my role, and I think in all families you find your role, and my role was to, you know, bring the funny and let's laugh, you know, because life's hard. And I loved that. And that was, but you can't keep that up. So for me, it was, um, it was literally abusing a substance to keep the energy. To keep, you know, I couldn't just keep. You can't be the life of the party. Time after, you know, mummy needs the rest. <laughs> <laughs> And I pushed it and I pushed it and I pushed it and I, you know, slow learner, denial, you know, I was far from funny in the end, you know. But then by then, you, middle-aged woman, you don't know any different. Like, how do you, what on earth do you do? I mean, I had to literally take myself out. I had to put myself in time out for a very long time and relearn how to be. So I'm brand new, even though I'm 54, you know. I was sober for a year. You know, I did Australian Story and I was sober that year. But that was such a different sobriety to this one because this is recovery. Uh. See, I was emotionally not sober at all. I was white-knuckling it. I white-knuckled it for a year. And when I finally put myself in rehab, which was to recalibrate myself completely, you know, because when you're that addicted to a substance, you know, your personality becomes so defected. And you become so retarded. And I don't mean that in a crass way, you know. The actual word. Literally look up the word retarded. It retards you. And I was retarded by it. And so I had to, um, you know, and there's these defects of character that you have, you know. An addict wants instant gratification. That's all we know. I want it now. And we use our mammal brain, you know. It's like I have to feel better this this instant, you know. And then the more times you brought massive amounts of shame upon yourself, well, there's only one quick fix for that to make it stop hurting. That's, imagine you've got a broken leg and there's a vial of pethidine right there. You're going to jab it in your thigh, aren't you? You know? So yeah. you have to break that cycle. And as it turns out, I think this is the miracle of addiction. I just think it's almost like it's almost like they accidentally came across penicillin for the soul, you know, what recovery does. It seems almost the disease almost seems to fit the person perfectly because recovery suits me so well. Because say even if I wasn't an alcoholic in that I didn't have the inverse allergy, I would still always have a tendency to not listen, to grab the hog the limelight, be the talker, show off basically, I'm a show off. And I would have missed out on listening and being present, you know. You can't do all the talking. You miss out. 
I'm, I'm so glad. I would not not. I mean, I'm ashamed of things I've done and a lot of the, the way things have turned out. I wouldn't trade being an alcoholic for all the money in China. China have a lot of money, don't they? I think a it was. Lot. Or is more it, money than tea. Or is it tea? More money than tea these days. <laughs> Pretty much everything except this table <laughs> and that fruit was made in China. <laughs> Clothes I'm wearing, everything is made in China. That microphone, this recorder, this glass, this phone, they got money. Um, I actually, I actually, uh, it's interesting as someone who I also am in recovery, I have these uh, interesting things that, uh, come over me from time to time and I don't know what to do with them, Fiona. They're called emotions. Oh, aren't they, aren't they the worst and the best? <laughs> For so long, I, I used alcohol to uh, allow me to not have to experience them. Mm. But even just then when you were um, uh, dropping some of the magic words, from what I believe is a, uh, a fellowship-based uh, community of people uh, that come together to help each other. Yeah. I think that's the only way I can refer to it. <laughs> um, had long talks with my guy about this. Like, how the fuck do I talk about it? He goes, because yeah, he's American. He's yeah, like, hey, right. man, you can't talk. And I, I know you want to talk. You can't talk about it. <laughs> um, but no, but you're right. Because white knuckling is certainly in my story as well. Um, how would you explain white knuckling to someone who has no idea what that is? It's where you, your mind is fighting the urge to not feel or think you're not have these emotions your, your mind is fighting and not enjoying one moment of the present mm. I, I, uh, it's interesting i was just talking about this before is that the way i uh, have, have when i look about it now is it, it's essentially is like if i'd t- gone off all of my meds but never seen a shrink suddenly here yeah, i yeah, am yeah. with my the things that i was drinking to suppress yeah. are now turned up to full fucking volume. It's like a fire hose with no one holding it. Yeah, yeah. And that's it. Everyone I loved was standing in the path of that thing. Wow. <laughs> yeah. 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 And, you know, everything was supposed to get better if I stopped drinking. It yeah, yeah. didn't. <laughs> what? What? <laughs> I love the fire hydrant. Yeah. yeah. So how then, for, for folks, I mean, you talked about um, uh going to rehab, a lot of people only know what that is from the Amy Winehouse song. Um, but what, what actually goes on for folks who've never, never been there? Are you okay to... Yeah, well, know? I went to... I'd been to... I thought I'd been to rehab, but I hadn't at all. I'd been to private clinics. Uh-huh. That's where you lie down for 30 days and take Valium and have lovely meals and watch television. There's one down the road. Yeah, well, <laughs> it was actually a friend of mine who's a heroin addict. Um said to me, whatever you do, don't go private. And so I went to a therapeutic community. I shared a room with, um, you see, an alcoholic, I shared a room with four other women and you have to be on a work crew. So you're either, you're up at seven, you have one hour a day to yourself, one hour, and you're not allowed to be alone. You're with three other peers the whole time. And two phone calls a week, no television, no phone. And it sounds like... Sounds very grim, but you slowly, it's discipline, really. It's just mm. like, as I was saying, you know, that, I, you know, I want gratification. I want it now, immediately. It's all about delaying that and relearning, you know, how to wait for things and enjoy things, you know. Even enjoying your lunch is, you know, I'll be, the addict is still quite alive in me, but it's just not in, you know, I'll be, I'll watch a movie and eat my lunch and play 
solitaire on my phone. You know, what's that about? Greedy guts. I want, I want to be entertained and fed. You know, it's just all too much. And so having time out from all of that was extraordinary. And then time to honestly look at yourself, which isn't pretty. Because if, if I'm not mistaken in rehab, it's an opportunity to, would you say it allows you a chance to relearn how to be a human Absolutely. Outside of the habits that you had yeah. been using? Yeah. And also the joy of joys. I was funny and, you know, it was like I'm still here. Like before, I mean, I'd get pulled up every now and then for um, my codependency tendencies, you know, and they're like, stop, she can help herself, you know, don't make it better in treatment. Because it was just like in the movies in treatment sitting around and literally people – you know, pointing out your faults and you're having to defend yourself and then let your guard down. And wow, I cried like I've never cried before. Sounds came out of me I didn't know I could make, mm. you know. And then you said about rebuilding. Yeah. And it's a blessing. We're so lucky to have it. You found, you know, great fame and great success as someone who was funny. And um, as you mentioned, you know, the. The, the life of the party part of you ended up being the thing that you got paid for. Yeah. Were you worried that that might not be there on the other side of sobriety? I was absolutely convinced it wouldn't be. I thought it was gone. So by then I had nothing to lose. Like I had no – and I'm a bit of a drama queen, but I'd lost everything. I should – you know, I took it. I wasn't it, – I wasn't like, oh, wow, this is getting out of control. I better get myself to rehab. I I drove it off the cliff. mm to the point that I was homeless, penniless. I was a disgrace, absolute disgrace. Like I had nothing, literally nothing. Kids were picking up your phone calls? Always had the kids. Okay. The one thing I am, you know, I'm not proud of many things, but I am proud of this. I never conceded to the disease. Like I never, I've relapsed, but since going public as an alcoholic, which I did long before I understood what that was. See, I just thought if I say I'm an alcoholic, uh, I'll name it and it'll be better. Mm. But then I went underground. But, and I think it's not so much a virtue of mine, it's more the luck of the draw and the six of one, half a dozen the other, of being a woman, a mother addict. You are held to account in a way that a man isn't. Mm And some people would argue that's not fair. I'd say that's a grace because if you're an honest mother, your child, you won't drink. You won't sit in a front bar and tell your kids to fuck off. You know, that's not going to happen. So a lot of white knuckling, but that was the best and all I knew how to do. Mm. You know, so never, I mean, I remember one day I said, one day I, um, it was in summer and I was drinking underground which I did whenever I was away from the kids and I couldn't get back, you know, to sobriety in time and they knew that I'd been drinking and I tried it on that day. I was an absolute asshole, and that was only one day. See, had I been a man with my personality, I could well have been that guy who does stay in the pub and this is how it is. Sorry, fellas, dads are drunk. Go and sit in the fucking car. Go sit in the – you know, I, and I'd say <laughs> – just by the good luck yeah. of being born without a dig, <laughs> I got to keep my kids. Yeah. 
What was the um, – so in this uh, therapeutic community that you lived in, what was the time frame? In the- uh, five months, I think. Right. Yeah. So it's, it's a real absolute full lifestyle shift yeah. away from what the way you had been living yeah. to help you transition to a way yeah. free uh, and I guess – trying to help you avoid the shoots and ladders that can slip you down yeah. from your habitual behaviours. Yeah. Um, I mean, I don't know, your, your story is probably, it sounds very different, but I definitely there was a time in my life where I, I wouldn't fly the morning of a gig. If I had a lunch or something and I had to be somewhere for like, say, for example, if I had to go do a thing in Brisbane or a thing in Melbourne, I would always fly the night before because that way the bar was open. Ah. I could get just munted on yeah. the plane. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. Just, you know, Oh, the planning that goes on. Oh, my God. I could have eight or ten hours before I, I was asleep in the hotel room bed and then, I, oh, no, it's because I've got to get a good sleep the night before the show. <laughs> and you actually almost believe your own shit. I did. And the next thing you know, someone's banging on my door because yeah. I've ordered breakfast that I've forgotten about. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. <laughs> you know. yeah. So, but it's the, I, I guess it's the, it's the, it's all these tiny little things, these tiny little things that I've put into my life to allow drinking to happen. I yeah. I to unlearn. Yeah, 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 yeah. And it's so kind of freeing not having to make those sometimes i'm like oh no i don't have to worry yeah but i, I remember my brother-in-law saying when he the best thing about giving up smoking was never to have that panic of where are they <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah but it is it's a and I, the people i met in there they're with me every day you know yeah you know this happened to me and i come from the bright side of the road you know yeah it's humbling what i yes such an incredible thing, this particular method of recovery that we're talking about, um, in that it is so simple and so perfect in so many ways that it was it's nearly a hundred years old, yet it's still so applicable. Yeah. And you know, here I am thinking I'm so smart and clever and God, I'm so individual. So no, some guy fucking figured this out a hundred <laughs> yeah. years ago, wrote it down, and that sh- this shit will still work. And I remember this particular man, he's a incredibly talented photographer but i remember looking at him and going okay he's good looking he's it was gay beautiful he was hot his husband was hot um he was well built he was smart he was successful he was creative he was funny and he was sober and i was like wow i want you know i want what he's got yeah 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 okay that's the first one i ever saw i was like oh it can be that I didn't know it could look like that. Yeah. And he was the guy I called, you know, yeah, about yeah. five or six months later. I called him up out of the blue and said, hey, man, I need uh, exactly – can you, that, can you take it? me to a little room with a lino floor <laughs> and a folding chair, please? <laughs> and he did. And he did. <laughs> I had some jam fancies. Um, <laughs> it is, I was LA and there was no good biscuits. And ah. also what you do see too is it is – we're so identifiable. Mm. Um. What I used to think were alcoholics are not. See, I think drunks give alcoholics dr- <laughs> booze. Booze fiends give alcoholics a bloody bad name, don't you reckon? <laughs> Boozers, they give us a bad name because I know plenty of big drinkers, yeah. and they're not me. Yeah. You see yourself. You know when you've seen another one of us. You know. Yeah, and but what you're saying though is that. And I, and this is where the codependent part of me had to really rein it in, is that um, you know, the last thing I wanted to hear when I, I mean, you know, they, they call them Eskimos. There was a few Eskimos that I told to fuck off 
before I finally mm. called my friend. Um, and there's no point. No. If the person's not ready, they're not ready. All you can do is show. Well, it's interesting because I went to this lino flawed place many times and didn't listen. Yeah. Not wouldn't, I think, as much as couldn't. Yeah. And yet when you're ready, there it is. <laughs> it's crazy. Yeah. If people only knew, and that's my big thing, is people only knew how much help there really is and how many people are really willing to really go out of their way oh, it's a, to really help a complete stranger. Yeah. Well, that's all. That's what I'd love to tell anyone. You know, I'm not talking. And if you don't understand this, like, great, lucky you. Yeah. I'm not talking to you. That's kind of we're doing a documentary about at the moment. I'm talking to the person who, as horrific as this sounds, do you know, you know, have you put your jeans on without your undies and your top on without your bra just to get to the bottle shop? To stop the shakes and to to escape from seeing what you've become. That's who I'm talking to. Yeah, right. And if you're there, you know you're there. Yeah. And I'm here. <laughs> <laughs> but, but like, what's his name in that ad? Don't call me. <laughs> <laughs> call us, not me. Don't call me. Right. <laughs> no, but yeah. It, no, but yeah. Hmm. yeah. Articulate too. Well, I, I, I don't know if it was – and certainly – I couldn't have, as you mentioned in Alice Springs, you couldn't have done it in Alice Springs. I couldn't have done it in Australia. Mm. Like, you know, certainly in Sydney in the circles I was living in. Mm. And you know, I was working in the music industry and I was working in the television industry. It was, you know, oh, absolutely, I yeah. Forget about it. Like you know, I had to go to North America and to Los Angeles where, you know, people who had – they know they've dealt with this shit. At pro strength too. Yeah, yeah, Sunset yeah. Sunset Boulevard. <laughs> you needed rehab fort. <laughs> well, I never, I never went to, I never went to oh, rehab. Oh, okay, just yeah. I never went to rehab. I just, I just went and hung out. Yeah. In, in rooms a few times a day. <laughs> well, when I first went to um, Karalika, which is where I went in Canberra, um, and for some reason I had Canberra in my head. I mm. don't know. Canberra means nothing to me, but that's where I knew I was going, you know. And yeah. But I went there thinking, okay, because that's, that's what I was talking about before, that one year I had where I was white, white-knuckled it for yeah. a year. Um, and I reckon anyone who is one of us would see that Australian story and go, nah, she's, right. you know, even though I was, you know, sober for that year, not emotionally. Mm. But so by the time I was ready for rehab, and I'd lost the lot, you know, um, I what I my, my intention was to work out how to live with being this unhappy. Oh, uh, that's what I thought the best outcome was. Yeah. Uh, okay, you have to live in this head. Find a way. Okay, I'll go here and I'll stay there until I work it out. I had no idea that there was that four-letter word called hope. <laughs> <laughs> I'm chowing down on it now. Yeah, I love it. So. You know, for for folks who are listening who might have heard something in what you've said and gone, you know what, that sounds, that reminds me of mm. a little part of myself. Well, what would you say to them? You're not a bad person trying to be good. You're a sick person trying to be well. Right. It's a, quite a perspective shift. Mm. Once you get that going on, isn't it? Yeah. No one wants that. It's really sad, you know. 
to I, I had an uncle who's a chronic alcoholic and died without finding recovery. You know, I've wept for him in the last year, just thinking, you know, the fog that you're in, that never finding it. It's here. It's and if I can get it, fucking anyone can. I'm as dumb as dog shit. You know, you got you got to go a long way to find anyone less educated than me. <laughs> you um. Like literally I thought New Zealand was where Papua New Guinea was till I was 20. Okay, so that's pretty thick, isn't it? Well, you did grow up in the bush. It's fine. <laughs> there probably weren't many globes around. <laughs> and I was daydreaming at school. It's all right, Fiona. <laughs> it's all right. But from by the sounds of things, you do live – you are, you said, you were one of seven. You are part of a family and I'm, I'm sure that your sense of humour isn't in isolation. Um, I heard a story. You, you were in a coma for a while, weren't you? Mm. You had a faulty heater – that gave you carbon monoxide poisoning, is that right? Yeah, which also gave me uh, – I, I thought I had early Alzheimer's. Oh. And I was forgetting all sorts of things to the point – and totally forgot I was an alcoholic, you know. <laughs> so we can't blame everything on the heater. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, I was in a coma. I was in organ failure. And it was quite something. Pretty grim. But when you came out of it, yeah. what, did, what did your sisters do? <laughs> Kate and Emily – they were both, I was in ICU. We were mucking around. It was just so great to be awake. Um, they were talking to their wrists. And Kate said, yeah, she's at the Austin. She's awake. Yeah. And I was still pretty shaky. But you've just come out of a just coma. Just three days out of a coma, you know. And I'm looking at her and what are you doing? And because the world is a weird place when you've been in a coma. You don't know where you were. You don't know what happened. And you, I'm just trying to understand that I was in a coma and, and Emily was talking to her wrist and she's saying, yeah, we'll meet you at two o'clock. I remember this two o'clock thing that was happening and they were going to meet someone. And I lay there and I said, what are you doing? And Kate pointed to her wrist and she said, they're microchips. We've all got them. And I'm getting more confused by the second. And then Emily comes, comes in with, you do know you've been in a coma for seven years. <laughs> Then they were waiting for brain damage because that was it was a twenty percent chance I'd survive. Yeah, seven percent chance I'd be okay. Wow. Yeah. So they're all looking at me very intently, and this was just after the microchip. <laughs> I'm lying there. I'm like, oh my god! And I heard whispers about, you know, is she okay? Mum wasn't happy with the mucking around. <laughs> And my beautiful dad, you know, he's an old farmer and he was sitting next to me and he's holding my hand. I just remember holding that dear old gnarly farmer's hand, you know, he's in his 80s. And he's, and Emily's there and they're all watching me very closely and dad said, dear, I'm just going to get a cup of tea. I'll be back in a minute. And he left and I just stared straight at Emily. I said, I have no idea who that man is. And she, <laughs> she I'm like not retarded, and that's for the that's for the microchip gag. All right. <laughs> <laughs> so at least that came back to life. Oh, yeah. well, I'm glad you're okay, Fiona. Yeah, I am too. Thanks for coming around. And I also think, just on that subject, those that sister, particularly Kate. If if you're listening to this and you have a sibling, you know, or someone you love. And we are terribly annoying people, addicts, you know, in the throw of it. But I'm not fully sold on the hard love, you know? Yeah. Tough love in its entirety. What my sister, she saved my life. What she did for me 
was certainly not support me in drinking at all, but she never shut the door on me. You know, you take yourself away from them way before they kick you out anyway, if you've got half a brain. But she was there as soon as I was ready. She drove me there. Yeah. Someone, you've got someone in your life who'll do that for you. Right on. Thanks so much for coming around, Fiona. Thank you so much for having me. You're a gem. <laughs> I'm going to take your photo real quick, okay? Oh, okay. Don't worry, you look great. <laughs> That is Fiona O'Loughlin. If you like the conversation, you can reach out to her on Twitter. Let her know. Fiona O'Loughlin, O-L-O-U-G-H-L-I-N underscore is her name on Twitter. Or go see her live. Go see her stand-up. Um, I know it might be tough, but I'm going to ask you to do something this week. I'm going to ask you to call a stubborn relative. I'm going to ask you to call a stubborn relative or a stubborn person in your life who's like, No! No, I'm not voting for same-sex marriage. Lesbians, they're fine, but gay dudes, not having it. Ticking no. You know what? Fuck that. Right now, their votes already know. Make a phone call. It'll take you two minutes. Maybe five. But right now, their votes already know. If they get off the phone, they're pissed off, their vote will still be no. But at least you tried. And that's what's important. So make the call. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for helping me get to 200. Couldn't have done it without you. You're the best. I'll talk to you next week. Sleep well and dream of beautiful things. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 